Okay, so <clears throat> we have been talking about uh, the Eightfold Path, and we've been talking about the division of the Eightfold Path called Virtue. Do uh, you recall what the other two divisions of the Eightfold Path are? Wisdom. Wisdom. Meditation. And meditation, yes. The virtue part consists of three, three parts of the Eightfold Path for virtue. Anybody like to remind us of what those are? Speech. Right speech. Right, right action. Right livelihood. That's right, yeah. And each of these are practices. And uh, we begin looking at each one by looking at it from the point of view of uh, what would be wrong speech, wrong action, wrong livelihood. And then from there, uh, work our way into talking about what would be right action, right speech, right livelihood. And there are practices. Um, it's not a set of rules to follow. It's a practice to do. And the point of doing the practice is to become more mindful, to understand why it is that you do and say the things that you do, um, to see what your motivations are, and if you if you understand the Dharma, you realize that all of our suffering comes from desire and aversion that's rooted in our belief in our separateness. And likewise, all of the harm that we do bring to anybody else, all of the unnecessary suffering that we create in the world and inflict on others, likewise comes from desire, aversion, and ignorance. Uh, ignorant belief in, in our separateness. This is a practice that gets us in touch with those things. It does change our behavior, but it is a practice. It's not a set of rules to follow. So we've talked about right speech, and that begins with uh, not engaging in false speech, harsh speech, divisive speech, or idle speech and gossip. And it evolves into using speech in ways that are beneficial to others, using speech skillfully uh, and in, in ways that, uh, oh, that are beneficial to everyone. Right action, first look at what is wrong actions. Wrong action is uh, causing harm to others, killing or destroying other beings. Um, taking what is not freely given, and uh, sexual misconduct. And that's one we haven't talked about yet. We've talked about the others before. So we're at the point of discussing sexual misconduct, and from there we'll move into right livelihood and talk about that. But right action involves refraining from sexual misconduct which everybody knows what that is, right? <laughs> Anybody know what that is? <laughs> Have some idea, right? I'd love to hear somebody try to 
describe what sexual misconduct is. Cause yourself or someone else harm. Nine well, that's right. That's that lies at the bottom of all of these things mm -hmm. is any kind of sexual contact that is harmful to yourself or to others. And what would some examples of that be? Mr. Wiener, who's uh, running for mayor of New York. Sexual abuse. Okay, so so what's mis what where's the misconduct in what Mr. Wiener? He's harming himself. He's harming. He definitely harmed himself, didn't he? He definitely harmed his wife. Yes. Right. <laughs> I think he definitely harmed those people who, for whatever reason, thought he was going to uh, represent their political views. So what are some other examples? Oh, just straight examples of misconduct. Um, I tend to pay attention to anything that describes a power discrepancy um, an older person with a younger person, a, a person in authority, a boss, a teacher, a, a, a commanding officer, um, having their way with a, yeah. a, a lesser ranked individual because yeah. that could be coercion. Coercion, coercion. I think that's the key word, coercive. So whenever, uh, whenever sexual behavior is coerced, there's some imbalance of power that uh, is driving the behavior, right? So that's that's definitely an example of sexual misconduct. Yes? There can be an imbalance of power when one person is more aware of the dynamic and is interacting with a person who is who is relatively naive and needy. Yes. Um, and that that power difference can be quite subtle, but it's very it's very definitely mm -hmm. there. And I think that yeah. that. But um, well, it, it it is easy, and it does happen a lot that people think that somehow. In any situation where there's any kind of power imbalance, that there shouldn't be sex. Does that make sense? No, it's no, no sense at all. That's part of the enjoyment of that's that. Right. <laughs> well, <laughs> well the, the thing is that you know, there's so many different kinds of power. It takes so many different forms. Uh, it's not about that. It's about whether whether the power difference is present is used coercively. It's the coercion. And coercion means that that I mean, it basically means that uh, power is used to cause something to happen which might not have happened uh, in the absence of that power difference. Now, of course, even that, you know, we can make that sound really clear-cut. But human nature being what it is, I'm sure there are some people that 
that's exactly what they want out of a sexual relationship, <laughs> is they want to be overpowering. So even there. <laughs> but nevertheless, it's, it's the coercion. It's, it's the harm or the potential for harm. What are, what are other forms of sexual misconduct? Is this adultery? Yeah, adultery. So, what's wrong with adultery? Well, I mean, if you you committed to vows to be faithful to another person, yeah. and you break the vow, that's harmful to you at least, maybe to the other person. If I had that. Well, I I think that you know we can generalize that. When you've made a vow, okay, if you don't keep that vow, you are doing harm. You're doing harm to yourself, okay. You're going doing harm to your your integrity, your self-esteem, and all those things like that. And of course, if you've made a vow and other people expect you to keep that vow, then you're doing harm to them. You're betraying them. But, uh, and, and that's definitely present in adultery. But, you know, look at it a little more deep. What, what if you have two people in a relationship and neither one has ever stated a commitment? What is that? Is it if, if no commitment has ever been voiced? Does that ever happen? Yeah. And, and, and does one of the partners ever engage in sexual activity with somebody else and says, I never said I wouldn't. And the other one says, but, but I thought. I mean, after all, we've this and that, so forth. Are they hurt any less because uh, the commitment wasn't overtly stated? Then, then of course the argument comes up that that's the person who's hurt. It's it's their own fault. Mm-hmm. Well, sure. And, yeah. and there's nothing the uh, the actor can do if you're going around making presumptions and not saying anything. <laughs> then right. what can the actor do about that? You can presume that you're in their will too, and and be all wounded when you yeah. find out. When they get hit by a bus and you get nothing. Oh, but I thought. Yeah, well, the world's so, full of oh, but, but I is, thought. That is that is a common uh, um, argument that I have heard in this precise situation. I would really love to hear if you have any anything to add to what is it when the person, the actor, doing the I never said I would, mm-hmm. I never said I wouldn't, when. When that person confronts these presumptions and says, Ali Ali Enfrey, I never stated it explicitly, is there a, a, inside the Buddhist precepts, is, is there any kind of comeback other than, <laughs> is there anything besides, well, yeah, you got me there? Yeah, well. <laughs> Actually, there is. We'll work our way up to to what there is there. But, yeah. So, you know, uh, it's like everything else we've talked about. 
you can't make a statement, a, a, a pronouncement. This is always wrong in any form. This is, you know, this is not. Because, hey, life's more complex than that. People are more <coughs> complex than that. Every situation is more complex than that. You cannot do it. So we could try to analyze and define, you know, come up with codes of conduct. This is how Buddhists behave sexually. You know? <laughs> and that's what everybody else in the world does. But that's not what this is about. That's not what this is about at all. You know, um, two people are married. They've made vows, but, you know, they're both very liberal-minded. and just, Yeah. You go ahead. I will too. Is that is is that wrong? Why would it be wrong? You know, Friday night, two people are having a good time. End up going home, going to bed. She thinks this is it. He thinks that was fun. <laughs> um, now, it's possible that he doesn't have any idea. That somehow he's sufficiently lacking in sensitivity and attention and thinks that her attitude is exactly the same as good. But if he isn't that insensitive, what do you think? Does he have some kind of obligation to make the situation clear to her? If he if he feels like uh, uh, if there's, if he feels like there's any possibility that she's going to be hurt, I would say so. Yeah, and that's what it's about. Of course, if you're too dense to know, you know, hey, I, I can't, I, I, I can't blame you for not taking action because you're just too dumb to realize. Or too insensitive or whatever, but. If you had any sense that it might be the case, and then it would be really decent thing to say, you know, the next morning as you're buttoning your shirt up, say, you know, by the way, I don't want you to get the wrong idea. <laughs> a bit late. <laughs> what? A bit late. Not necessarily a bit late. It might be a bit late. Now, there's another thing we talked about coercion is exploitation, right? It, it could have involved exploitation. He could have recognized that she was really needy. And he could have said, ah. <laughs> right? And that would be exploitation. In that case, next morning would be a bit late. Yes, it would definitely. Coercion, exploitation, things. It's, it's the harm that you cause to yourself and to others. What you, could, what you can reasonably know. And what it's really about is being mindful of what you're doing and being mindful of the impact it has. And when you find that something's producing these kinds of repercussions, that you examine yourself what are your motives? interesting about sexual misconduct is there's one motive that is usually going to be there uh, pretty consistently, which is desire. Although, desire for what? 
she's young and beautiful, he's old and rich. <laughs> they get together, they both have desire, but they have desire for the same thing. Now there you have two different power imbalances, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. No, it's, it's all about taking responsibility. Anybody have any other? Yeah. So, this issue of desire in, in sex, and, you know, I'd say if there's one act in the entire human repertoire that falls under skillful 99.9, unskillful 99.9999% of the time, it would be sex, because... I mean, there's always some sort of reifying desire involved. I'm here, partner's there, desire for that, ooh, sexy, da-da-da-da-da, you know, and we'll play out this scenario, whatever. In fact, I think, I mean, in that sense, skillful sex is an experience that's foreign to practically everybody, you know. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people ask, you know, in Dharma talks, you know, can Buddhists have sex? Did they get you know aroused? Is it possible physiologically? I mean, <laughs> you know, in that sense, purely skillful sex is a profoundly foreign experience. I think to uh, most people. That's well, yeah. I, the only thing is that. 99% of everything that people do is unskillful. <laughs> 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 I mean, it's, like, it's, it's one of these activities that really gets built up in people's minds more so than others. Than just but there was kind of another part of what you were saying, put it this way. Is there such a thing as skillful sex? <laughs> is there such a thing as wholesome sex? Now, this is really, this is really, you know, sexual misconduct. Is there sexual conduct that's not missed? <laughs> well, about providing pleasure for your partner. Of course. So, yeah. obviously. That's right. Yeah. And actually, that's the best kind of sex, right? Practicing generosity. What's that? Practicing generosity. Generosity. Loving kindness. Compassion. All of these things can, they can motivate sex. And, you know, there's some people that have this idea that a Buddha, a Buddha is completely free of desire and say, well, no sex for him or her. No sex for her. No desire, no sex. But, now this is a, a wonderful thing that you can explore since you were all most likely sexual beings. There's pleasure. Pleasure is one thing. Desire is a motivation. It's an impulsion. It's, it pushes you to take action. And Buddhas feel pleasure just as much as anybody else does. There's nothing that happens when somebody becomes enlightened that destroys the pleasure center in their brain. Or that 
burns off the tips of all the pleasurable nerve endings in that body. <laughs> and so, pleasure, pleasure is still there. And so, could a Buddha have sex? A Buddha could certainly enjoy sex. Um, somebody might say that, yes, but a, a, a male Buddha, he probably couldn't have sex because he didn't have any desire, you know. The hardware wouldn't work, or software. You know. <laughs> 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 Do you think that's true? No. Why not? Why would it be true? Because it's not just desire. I mean, there's physiological... That's true. Causality. That's right. Yeah. You know, uh, people who had an injury, so their spinal cord is severed, so their brain is no longer connected to their body, their body responds sexually the same way as everywhere. So whoever said it's all in your head. <laughs> <laughs> Shared between both. Um, some of the best parts of it are in your head. <laughs> Yeah, so, so, so a Buddha could physiologically have sex, and a Buddha could uh, enjoy having sex. And a Buddha could have lots of good reasons and motivations for having sex, but we don't need to try to enumerate them all. I mean, might want to procreate, or might want to give pleasure to, to his or her partner. So it's just the idea that there's, there's lots of possibilities there. We're more interested in, in terms of sexual misconduct and trying to separate those unwholesome motivations and recognize them, get in touch with them. And remember, as with all of these things, I mean, the only reason somebody would tell a lie or take something that doesn't belong to them or, uh, or any of the other things that we've talked about is... It comes from this notion that that I'm a self, and to make myself happy, I need certain things, or certain things need to happen, and to keep myself from suffering, likewise, there's certain things I need to avoid and prevent. This, this is what underlies all of our unwholesome behavior. But, and all we can do, all of we can do the opposite of that. Rather than harming people, we can protect people. Rather than stealing things, we can protect other people's property. Not only that, rather than stealing things, we can be generous with our own property. So there's a flip side to all of these things. And it's the same thing with sexual misconduct. That you can you can have sex in a in a selfish way, and I would say as long as it's selfish, there's going to be a certain subtle degree of exploitation very likely some coercion, other things like that. And probably a lot of what happens with a lot of people is it's, uh, it's mutual exploitation, <laughs> right? And, but isn't the best sex... I mean, uh, <laughs> the, the difference between, you know, pornography... And a movie that depicts people who love each other making passionate love. There's a difference, right? Mm -hmm. and the same thing is, there's different, you know, that's, 
That's one place that puts these two things into contrast. But the best kind of sex is the sex that comes from love. It's, you know, let me make you happy and I'll let you make me happy and oh boy, isn't this great and we're both really happy. And There's something very wholesome in all of that, right? And to get there doesn't mean that you have to stop having sex or anything like that. It means that you just purify your motivations and then you have the best sex of all. So, in other words, what I'm saying is anytime you have sex, you have an opportunity to examine it and find the elements of selfishness that are present in it. And once you find those things, well, in the process of finding those things, you'll become very mindful. As a matter of fact, it takes a certain amount of skill in the, in the passion of the moment to have that awareness of what, what your underlying emotions are. So if you succeed in doing that, you've already become quite mindful. You know, hey, you, you've done a good thing. You understand yourself better, and of course you have an opportunity to let go of the unwholesome aspects of your motivation and to, to purify it. You have an opportunity to replace the selfish components with unselfish, generous, loving, other components. So, basically, sexual misconduct it is conduct of a sexual nature that is harmful to you or to the other person. And sometimes the harm is subtle. Even though, you know, we've got this mutual agreement, uh, we're going to exploit each other. For you to engage in that mutually agreed upon exploitation is to harm yourself. At the very least. You can't take responsibility for the other person. But you could you could change that. At least it would only be one half would be exploited, and the other half would be given freely. Good heart and generosity. So that's conduct of a sexual nature. What what is what is sexual conduct? Is that is it sexual only when there's genital contact? No. No. Who said that? I did. You did? Oh, tell me more. <laughs> well, I think there's precursors to genital contact that can be considered as a sexual nature. That's for sure, yeah. That's right. Precursors. What about... <clears throat> what about using someone else's sexual attraction towards you to get them to do something you want. Mm -hmm. okay. Are there any other uh, any other examples that you can think of? 
That's all right. You don't need to. But you, so what's what's the boundary then of, of what's sexual? It's pretty broad. It ends up being pretty broad, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, <clears throat> we have two possibilities. What we can do is really work on this and come up with as clear and precise a definition as we can, you know, uh, I'm not sure how sharp and clear we could we can possibly make it, but if we really worked on it, at least we could come up with a big area over here and say, well, everything in that area is sexual, and everything over here is not sexual. We could do that. There's another approach we could do. We, we could take and say, well, what's the essence of this anyway? Okay. We're sexual beings. So sexual misconduct is something that in one way or another abuses the sexual aspect of a person's nature, of human nature. But, hey, as human beings, we're not only sexual, we've got all kinds of other drives, desires, fears, everything else, right? So instead of trying to define what's sexual and what's not, I suggest we go the other way and say, forget that part. Just sexual conduct is just a really clear example of how normal human interactions can be wholesome or unwholesome. Okay? So... Let's just generalize it and say any kind of interpersonal interaction that is coercive, that is exploitive, that involves power imbalances, uh, that involves manipulating somebody else's uh, desires and drives and fears and hopes and everything else. What do you think of that? Yeah. Uh, that's kind of a good place to go with it, I think. Sex. Sex focuses, sex and death focus the mind very effectively. <laughs> you start with sex and you can learn a lot about yourself and you can examine the nature uh, of how we human beings interact. But as you learn from that, you can, you can carry that over into all kinds of other interactions that including those that uh, don't appear to have any sexual component to them at all. Because, actually, at one point I remember thinking, okay, how come sexual misconduct, how come none of the other ways that people exploit each other aren't talked about here? How come all the other ways that we have of... of uh, coercing people to do something that they might not necessarily want to do, or that might have uh, unpleasant consequences for them. How come? I mean, the Buddha never mentioned that. But the conclusion that I come to is, is actually, he did. When he said sexual misconduct, if you, if you start doing this as a practice, and if you do this as a rule, thou shalt not, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not, right? then it's not going to take you very far. But if you do this as a practice, where it inevitably takes you is to realize the same principles apply in every dimension of human interactions. And so now it becomes a really, a really powerful practice 
really powerful guideline for what we can make of ourselves and the impact that we can have on other people. And it's not just about engaging in misconduct. It's about using these types of conduct. Uh, monks are not supposed. Monks and nuns are not supposed to have sex at all. They're supposed to be celibate. You know, so that kind of makes it sound like you know, you know that uh, they don't have to worry about this particular part of the eightfold path. They don't have to worry about not engaging in sexual misconduct. They have no conduct at all. <laughs> but, no, uh, there are so many non-sexual ways that, that people do basically the same thing. So sexuality serves as a focus. And that, that's, let's broaden it, let's extrapolate it. And we see, it's not just misconduct. We're talking about right action. So right action is not just avoiding wrong action. Right action means using the actions in the most positive, helpful way you can. So it's sexual conduct that is maximally beneficial to those who are affected by it. It would be sexual conduct that not only does not create more suffering in the world, sexual conduct that actually reduces the amount of suffering in the world. Right? And the same thing with every other kind of conduct. You make your conduct into, in every aspect, you try to shape yourself as a being who comes from a place of non-selfishness and who behaves in ways that not only don't cause suffering, but also, to the degree that's reasonably possible, reduce the amount of suffering in the world. So that is right action. You practice this aspect of right action in the same way of all the things that we talked about, by practicing mindfulness in your daily life. We talked about uh, right speech means observing observing the way that you use speech, being mindful. So right action is about observing all of the different kinds of actions that you engage in, the degree that they are harmful or destroy other beings, the degree to which that they you allocate resources disproportionately to yourself and at the expense of others and that your interactions with other beings uh, are potentially harmful to them, whereas they could be beneficial. That's right speech and right action. It's a practice. It requires being mindful. It's requiring, whenever you're interacting with other people, to cultivate some degree of awareness. Why am I why am I behaving in the way that I am? And is the way I'm behaving consistent with what, what I believe? And if you're a Buddhist, you believe that any motivations that come from desire and aversion are reinforcing the delusion that you live in and therefore are going to set you up for more suffering in the future. 
right? So you want to become aware of those and to the degree that you can change and eliminate those, right? No more desire, no more aversion, no more suffering. Whoopee! <laughs> so this is, this is the way to do that. This is how you do that. Desire comes in through the back door of presumption. What's that? Desire comes in through the back door of presumption and assumption. If you think you're in a relationship and you think things are cool and, and you're going along status quo, and then your significant other comes home and says, well, it's been real, I want a divorce. Yeah. Uh, then you get tipped over Mm-hmm. by all these assumptions that you didn't even know were desires. I wish to continue That's in this right. path. Yeah. And then change happens, and you discover, oh, <laughs> change yeah. happens. Yeah. And that desire, that kind of desire, so far as I've been able to figure out, you just never see all of them coming. You can't. No, you can't. That's, that's, that's right. You can't, there's always going to be something that you didn't expect that comes along. And then you find yourself in the middle of saying, oh gosh, oh dear, I have craving to remain married, I have aversion to have this divorce, oh shucks. Now look what you did to my Buddhist practice, you creep. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. The, uh, well... If you if you understand how this works, as long as you live in the delusion of separate selfhood, there's always going to be something that can trigger desire and aversion. So don't be don't expect to be beyond completely beyond desire and aversion, and until you've done something really serious about this sense of being a separate self. Then if this hypothetical person who walks in the door and says, I want a divorce, interacts with this other hypothetical person who says, I don't, and they're both being selves, Mm -hmm. and then presto changeo, enlightenment occurs for both of them, and they recognize they are not separate. How the heck would that shake out? <laughs> be, you can write us a short story about that. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it, and being, being mindful is only one part of the process of changing yourself. Practicing virtue does a lot of really important things. But, you know, the, the Buddha didn't have a threefold path, right? Speech, right action, and right livelihood. He had an eightfold path. The other two parts are wisdom, right understanding, and right intention, and meditation, right effort, right concentration, right mindfulness. You have to have, you have, you have, to have all of these. You know, you can't meditate your way to the end of suffering. You can't study your way to the end of suffering, and you can't vir- virtuous your way <laughs> to the end of suffering. They, they, they all have to work together. 
and they all work together to gradually loosen the uh, the attachment you have to your separate personal selfhood. And, and believe me, even when that happens just to a small degree, it makes such an enormous liberating difference. It, it is quite wonderful. You loosen that enough so that now you can start to to be less enslaved by desire and aversion. Okay? And as you are less enslaved by desire and aversion, it becomes easier and easier to let go of your attachment to separate personhood. And you have your meditation gives rise to insight experiences, and with the mind trained in meditation, these insight experiences become insights that penetrate deeply into your mind and change the way you see things. When you change the way you see things, it changes the way you react to things, including the amount of suffering that you feel. It changes the way you see things in terms of separate selfhood. It changes the way you react to things in terms of desire and aversion, and it changes the, the amount of suffering that you have. It's not until you get to be a Buddha that you're going to be totally free of all of these things. But any little bit of progress you make along the way is going to be better than before. So yeah, you'll still get you'll still get blindsided until you reach the end of the path. Things will still happen. Life is like that. But there is an end to the path. And it's good in the beginning, it's good in the middle, and it's good in the end. So even if you don't make it to the end of the path, or even if you haven't made it to the end of the path yet, it's still going to be good. It's still going to, it's just going to get better as you go along. Any thoughts? Yeah? Sometimes it's not clear how things balance out in terms of adding more suffering or subtracting suffering from the world in terms of, um, for example, when you want to help someone, um, say someone with a drug addiction, and you've saved some money, say, and this person has gotten into trouble with their drug addiction and they ask you for help. Yeah. And, or, you know, there are many, many, many examples where it's not mm-hmm. clear that one may be more clear than I thought. <laughs> you know, there are many examples where it's not clear yeah. whether your actions would be... or, or it, For me, at least, sometimes I feel like it's not clear to me what the selfless thing is to do. That's right. If you had to... Thing. If the goal of the practice were... If the goal of the practice were never to do anything harmful, then... Yeah, it would seem like a difficult, insurmountable thing. You're going to you're going to make mistakes. You're going to you're going to find yourself in situations where it's really hard to figure out what the right thing is to do. Uh, you're going to be in situations where you're sure it's the right thing to do, and it's not until afterwards that you realize that it was a mistake. It's not about the outcome. The outcome, the outcome defined in terms of uh, not creating unnecessary uh, pain and suffering, and if possible, reducing the amount of pain and suffering that's already present in the world. The outcomes defined in terms of that 
but that's just a guide for you to examine your behavior. And then you look inside and see what the motivations are. Even something that you do that can ease the suffering of something out of someone else may be coming from a very selfish motive. Just as something you do that actually causes harm. So you're, you're drug addicted person that you love, you refuse to give them the money that would ease their addiction. Yeah, that's going to cause some suffering. But you look at the motive behind it. And so that, so that this is what this is really about. All you, you can never hope to be wise enough, omniscient enough, that you can foresee all the consequences to the, the actions that you take and the decisions you make. It's impossible. So don't expect that of yourself. To be perfectly skillful, I mean, supposedly this is an attribute of, of Buddhas in what's known as Buddhology, which is like theology. <laughs> it's, it's where head scratchers sit around thinking about what would be attributes of a perfect being. You know, and according to Buddhology, a Buddha can't help but do and say the perfect thing every time. Nice idea. But I'll tell you, if you read the sutras, you'll hear, you, you, you'll read about the Buddha screwing up. And then you'll read about people centuries later saying, oh, he didn't really screw up. What happened was blah, blah, blah. <laughs> he, knew, he knew this was going to happen. He knew this other worst thing would happen instead. And so, yeah. <laughs> so don't expect that of yourself. But what you can do, what you can do very successfully, is you can become more and more aware of what your motivations are, and you can purify your motivations so that, that they're not coming from a selfish place, and with any luck they're coming from a place of loving-kindness, compassion, generosity, and so forth. That you can do. And whether the outcome is going to be harmful or beneficial, this is your this is this is where you, you, you your leverage to get into your own mind and understand what you're doing. Because when you do something and it turns out to be harmful for someone else, there's one of two possibilities. You made a mistake, you thought that it was the best thing to do, or you knew that it was probably wasn't going to be good, but you were acting selfishly out of desire or aversion. And so that's, that's what you're really after, is to change what your own motivations are. And it's not about it's not even about changing yourself. It's about recognizing your motivations, trying to modify your behavior, because trying to act unselfishly when you have a selfish impulse, that creates an internal tension. And sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. But it's about becoming aware of it. Together with the other practices, becoming aware of it is eventually going to change that. So... Right speech, right action, right livelihood are not going to change you, but they are tools in combination with 
wisdom and meditation that are going to change you. Yeah. So through this practice, can you eventually sort out the more complex um, motivations, like for me, with generosity? Mm -hmm. um, in general, I figure it's probably good to practice because there's plenty of self to overcome the habits of. But I also am aware that there's some generosity that's based in getting some, you know, strokes out of it basically yeah and but it's it's at this point really hard for me i mean i can see a mix of motivations and then you know i do one thing or another but i guess i'm hoping that you'll provide some encouragement that it'll eventually become clear because it seems <laughs> to just kind of it yes it will eventually become clear i mean the first step in it becoming clear is when you realize you've got mixed motivation so, yeah, generosity, we can often be generous just because it makes us feel good to be generous. It, it makes us feel good about ourselves in a selfish way. Oh, aren't I such a wonderful, good person? Yeah. And one thing about that kind of generosity, it, if, if you think it's that, it's like, you see... When you're giving to get, you know, you're shopping, right? And if you're shopping, there's, you know, you have to weigh the cost versus the value of what you're getting. Okay, so if you think your generosity may be coming from a place of making you feel good, give twice as much to see how that feels. <laughs> And you'll find out. You, you'll, you'll know pretty quickly. Say, okay, I was really doing this to make myself feel good, but I don't feel that good. <laughs> <laughs> of course, sometimes you might say to yourself, hey, okay, I wouldn't mind giving them twice as much, but hey, you know, my kids aren't going to eat. Well, in that case, you know, it makes sense not to, not to give that much. I don't think you're suggesting that we can never feel good. Not at all. As a matter of fact, being generous will make you feel good, and there's nothing wrong with that. So I don't measure my generosity by not feeling good about it. It's, but the, the thing is, if you, if you are generous, well, this is an example of mixed motivations, because you can be generous out of love and caring to for the person that you're giving to, but it can be mixed with doing it because you know you're going to feel good as well. And what you can do is you, you can get to the place where you give to the person because you care about them, and you still feel just as good, if not better, about doing it afterwards, but it wasn't part of your motivation. That's that's the subtle place that you want to get to. And there's nothing wrong with finding out. As a matter of fact, there's everything right about finding out that there is selfishness in your generosity. That's what you want to discover, is the degree to the, which there's selfishness in your generosity. 
and it doesn't it doesn't automatically discount your generosity or make it bad. I mean, if your generosity were totally selfish, you know, it can be. The only the only reason you give is because you expect in one way or another to get back more. In most cases it's totally selfish. But many, many instances of generosity it, it has a really an important positive component to it. And you just want to increase that. If you discover that it's not pure, that's great. That's a wonderful discovery. It doesn't negate the value of what you've done, though. It doesn't negate, doesn't make you a bad person. It makes you an ordinary person. You probably shouldn't expect to have totally pure generosity until you become a Buddha, the kind of Buddha that Buddhologists talk about. <laughs> <laughs> so, speaking of shopping, is there not there a Buddhist tradition in some countries of uh, acquiring merit through generosity? And yep. You're trading, you're, you're shopping merit. Yeah. So, that's, what, that's, what is that about? That's, uh, it's what's called corruption of the Dharma. And there's a lot of that around. Yeah. That's, you know, there's a lot of rationalization. Why do we monks here in our temple encourage people to believe things that aren't true and to behave in ways that, that aren't really consistent with the Dharma? And the rationalization is, well, because if they give the money to us, we'll do a good thing with it, whereas otherwise they use it in, you know, and what good thing are we going to do with it? Well, we're going to make an even bigger, prettier temple for them to come to and pray and give money to monks at. <laughs> okay, well, the bell has rung. So I said, let you all go home. And next time, we'll start talking about right livelihood. But I'd like you to think about right livelihood. Think, think about what you what you believe that means. And I'll, I'll give you a little clue. Often livelihood is interpreted to mean how you make your living. But I suggest that you think of it in terms of how you live. How you keep alive. How you survive from day to day. That's your livelihood. Not just where you make your money. We'll talk about that in two weeks from time. <laughs>